Hello, my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. My faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. And if you believe spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. On the last episode, we talked about some of the history, we talked about the mythos of Gnosticism, the cosmological story that the Gnostics told about how the universe came to to be. And in this episode, I want to talk about why that mythos is actually incredibly relevant today. And there have been plenty of people that have looked at the Gnostic myth and have done a similar thing. They've interpreted it uh, and reinterpreted it for the modern age. The most well-known example of this is probably Carl Jung. Carl Jung was a psychologist. He was one of the pioneers of psychology along with Freud and others. And he thought the Gnostics were the precursors to his form of psychology. Depth psychology is what he called it. He looked at the Gnostic myth and he saw it as a metaphor for the human psyche and for the way in which the human uh, psyche interacts with its religious components, with uh, the different aspects of the self. Others have also taken on uh, the Gnostic myth and have woven different types of interpretations. In this episode, I'm not going to talk about those established Gnostic uh, reinterpretations. I'm going to present my own. And in no, by no means implying that this is a better or um, comparable interpretation to the ones that Carl Jung and Harold Bloom and others have made, but it's simply something that I've found useful. I think that the Gnostic myth is powerful in two ways. The first is because the critique that they leveraged via this myth still holds. And I'll explain why I think it does. The second reason is I think it offers a new myth, a myth that places responsibility for the co-creation of the world in each individual's hands. And at a moment in time when it seems like there is fragmentation of stories and myths, and particularly in the secular world, there doesn't seem to be any kind of story that really binds groups together. I think that the Gnostic myth can serve as that kind of uh, glue, that kind of story that really places human beings at the center of, of a story and places human beings in a position to change their own lives and the world around them. But at the same time, the beauty of it is we know that this myth is a myth. It's not real. It is a metaphor. I'll start first by explaining the way in which I think the critique of the old Abrahamic religions holds up, even today. And then I'll go into why I think that this myth can actually help inspire not just critique, but but actually construct. Before we jump into what I think is a fruitful reinterpretation of the Gnostic myth for the modern age, let's recap what the Gnostic myth is. So, in the Gnostic universe, there was Sophia. Sophia was wisdom, and she was a emanation of 
the absolute, the one, the monad, the true God. And this God was not a bearded man in the sky, it was not a human-like God at all. It was really kind of more like the laws of physics, kind of more like a Spinoza's God, an abstract entity uh, from which everything else uh, rose. And it had really, you know, no distinct agency or didn't really create the physical world at all. It just existed. And Sophia, was, along with all the other <clears throat> levels of divinity and aeons and all that, we're not going to get into that, everything descended from this absolute entity. Sophia wanted to know this entity. And in striving to know this entity, she failed. And in that failure, she instead created the Demiurge. And the Demiurge was this flawed thing. It's a creature, often described as a kind of animalistic being. And the Demiurge was believed that it was the only thing that existed. It could not see Sophia, its own mother. It could not see the higher orders of, of, of being above it. It only saw itself, and assuming that there was nothing else but itself, it started to create. It started to create the world, the physical world. And it created the physical world that we now know, and it also created all the animals and us, human beings. It created human beings, and into each human being placed a part of the divine spark, part of that absolute entity. The Demiurge inserted it into each and every one of us. And the Gnostic goal was to take these divine sparks and to elevate them, to lift them up, to bring them up and make them a part of that absolute, to join with the absolute in a process called henosis. And this is very much like the mystical goal of uniting with God, unio divina. The Gnostics were attempting to elevate their own souls and also those of everyone else to reunite with the true God, the true uh, order of reality from which everything had been separated in this false uh, creation, this false genesis. All right. So that is the Gnostic myth on Fast Forward. What I love about this myth, not only is it fantastical and, and has all of you know, these, these elements of a great uh, cosmic drama, it also was, and still is, a critique of naive anthropomorphic deities. Specifically, the Gnostic myth was critiquing the Abrahamic religions. Almost 2,000 years ago, they were critiquing Christianity, they were critiquing Judaism, they were critiquing the Abrahamic myth of a monotheistic god, a father-like, king-like entity that we find in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And they were saying that this is a false god, that the god that you are praying to in the Old Testament, in and also in by that measure that many Christians were, were praying to, it is a false god. 
There is a real God, they said, but it is not the one that you see creating the world in Genesis. It's not the one that we see uh, creating human beings in its own image, imbuing all of its own flaws into the human race. No, that is where evil comes from. That is where separation from the divine comes from. And there was this critique that they were making, the Gnostics were making way back then, that this is not a model God that we see in these, in these old texts. It's a jealous God. It's a God that, that is wrathful, that can be argued with and sometimes prevailed over. And as oftentimes, several times in the Old Testament, we see Moses and Abraham and several others actually convince God to change his mind, which is a strange, uh, a strange occurrence, but it, it happens numerous times. The Gnostics looked at this God and they said, this is, this is not the kind of God that, we're not convinced that this is the God. This is some false God. This is the Demiurge. And their critique is, was, was, a, was a powerful one. So powerful that actually the, the Christian, Christians at the time would, would censor the Gnostics because they had the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was very much a part of, of Christianity from early on, and they started to censor and, and suppress the Gnostics who were critiquing the, the foundations of their religion. Fast forward to today. The Gnostic myth, as I have described it with Sophia, the Demiurge, the absolute monad up above, and the creation of the, the human and physical realm, that maps on remarkably well to how, more or less, we have created the Abrahamic monotheistic religions. You start with the human understanding, human wisdom, human intellect, Sophia. It, once upon a time, tried to understand reality, tried to understand what is going on in the world around us, this realm of mysterious forces, death and life and the stars above, and it reached the human intellect reached trying to grasp what is truly going on, what is true reality. And in reaching for this most high thing, we failed. We failed to fully understand it, and in that failure, we created God. We created a demiurge. And there have been many gods throughout the millennia, and the one that particularly maps on well here is the kind of Abrahamic God that we find emerging in Judaism around 600 BCE and then becoming more and more prevalent in world religions, particularly those around the Levant and the, the Middle East at the time. So the human understanding reached for reality, absolute reality, failed and created the Abrahamic God. Now this God, this Demiurge, was a flawed God. And like the Demiurge in the Gnostic myth, believed that it was the only thing that existed. You shall have no other gods besides me. This God, this conception of God, then erased all other deities. And this was something that actually happened. The Jewish god, Yahweh, 
was one among a numerous number of gods that the Jewish people, the early Jewish people, believed in. There were many, a kind of pantheon of gods, and Yahweh actually had a consort, Asherah, a female counterpart. But over time, all of those other gods were whittled away, and only Yahweh remained. Later in Christian conceptions, this god became the one, the only one. And all other gods that other peoples had, the Egyptians, for example, or the Romans, or the Greeks, etc., etc., and later on uh, Native Americans and the the Gauls and anybody that uh, they came across, all of their gods were false gods. They were idols, they were pagan gods. The only god that existed was the Abrahamic one. And as such, we, as the descendants of this religious tradition, are in a sense enslaved by this structure, this way of thinking, that there is only one God, an Abrahamic God that is very human. And oftentimes it's uh, conveniently human. If you want to find reason to hate your enemies, you can turn to your God and call upon them, call upon this God to wipe them out. You can turn to this God and find uh, reassurance that uh, you are the chosen one, you are the chosen people, and your, your desire for power, your desire for land, your desire for control is justified because that's what God wants. There's a a phrase that I heard uh, not too long ago that you know your God's made up when he hates everyone that you hate. And we have have this Abrahamic God, this vestige of of our attempt to, to model what is really going on in ultimate reality, in the in the absolute sense. We we've inherited, we've created and inherited this demiurge who did not make us in its image, but rather we made the Demiurge. We made this God in our image. And we live underneath its rule, its legacy, its uh, structures of culture, structures of thought. It's something that we still are struggling with to this day. So the agnostic myth, in this sense, it holds up. I think it holds up because it, in a sense, maps on to the way in which we historically have created a God under which we have lived, under which we have conquered, under which we have expanded across countries and nations. And it is is a story of the, the Western God in particular. And for those who have been listening to this podcast for a little while, you know that I'm not a fan of a personal anthropomorphic God. I am much more open to the notion of the abstract God, Spinoza's God, Einstein's God, the notion of a God that essentially is equatable with reality. When we look out at the stars, when we look up and see the vast expanses that encircle our tiny blue dot, we are struck with awe. We're struck also with a sense of profound ignorance, uh, humbleness in the face of everything we do not know. And absolute reality is something that we really don't have a grasp on. We never did, and we certainly don't have a grasp on it now. There are all sorts of theories, all sorts of things still being worked out, and 
the scientific process may never give us a full and definitive picture, map of the territory of reality. We may never truly know what is going on behind the curtain. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but it's something to keep in mind. It is a humbleness that we should keep close and not let go of. And so I am much more inclined to find favor with the kind of traditions that look up past the demiurge, past this anthropomorphic human-like deity, and look towards this absolute entity. One that is not that is not like human beings, that does not hate everyone that we hate, that does not mimic and, and imitate the, the human realm, but really exists on a, on a plane and on a scale and in a way that is equatable with pure being, pure existence. It's the thing that makes space, space, that makes time tick. It's the stuff that undergirds the physical laws and really the, the place from which all the laws spring. Whether that is a conscious entity, I have no idea. I don't think anybody does. But it is a, a kind of open question as to where everything comes from, all of the constants that undergird the patterns of our reality. And that open question mark, that awe in the face of this, this absolute reality that we can only barely see the edges of, that is what the Gnostics, I think, were talking about when they were talking about the absolute, the monad. And it's not just the Gnostics. This is a theme that comes up in various uh, mystical traditions, Jewish mystical tradition included, Christian mystical tradition included. In Taoism, in Buddhism, it's much more to the forefront. And so the critique of the naive anthropomorphic god, the critique of the demiurge, is one that I think holds water today. And it reminds us to look past, look past the naive notions of religion, look past uh, the worship of this demiurgic god, and see the absolute behind it. The absolute that we were trying to grasp when we first created the notion of God, when we first set out trying to understand and, and forge religion, look to that notion, look to that entity, whatever it is. That is what the Gnostic myth is, is trying to remind us of. And I think that it's something that I personally uh, find a lot of inspiration of from. I think that it's something that is particularly relevant and, and applicable today. Now, I want to also talk about the second part of this. The second aspect of why I think the Gnostic myth works is not just because it critiques the naive, demiurgical construction of religion. It also gives us something to aspire to. So in the first telling of the story, the demiurge is seen as the villain seen as an outright malicious god. But there's another more generous way of looking at the Demiurge. The name the Demiurge comes from the old Greek word for artisan or craftsman. And in this way, there's another parallel with human beings. We are craftsmen. We are artisans. We create. We create tools. And that is one of the 
things that has allowed us to create towns and cities and agriculture and technology. We create worlds. We create worlds not on the scale of the Demiurge, at least not yet, but on a smaller scale. We create worlds with art. We create worlds with stories. We are thus inheritors of this demiurgical power. And so the demiurge, while it's in one, on one hand, can be seen as a kind of model for what not to do, at the same time, we have to acknowledge that the demiurge is a projection of ourselves. That the powers that we ascribed to the old god are powers that we recognized as human abilities. And so the question now is, you know, how do we integrate this? How do we acknowledge our own power, our own godliness, and put it to good ends? I think that we are each responsible for the development of the cosmic drama. We are each responsible, what I mean by that is, we are each responsible for the perpetual genesis that is ongoing, that has been ongoing for millennia. Each of us has the power of demiurgy, has the power of creation. It begins with ourselves. We have the ability to reconceptualize our lives. What are we living for? Who are we living for? What is our purpose? What is our direction in life? We then can expand that, our region of, of creation, our region of artisanship extends to those around us, towards the circle of those we love, towards our friends, towards our loved ones, our family. It goes further beyond that. We can extend the circle of our creation towards our neighborhood, towards our neighbors. We can forge connections. We can forge hope, inspiration. We can compliment people uplift them, tell them what it is they've done right, what it is they're doing right. We can inspire them. And in so doing, we are helping to change the social fabric around us. We can change that social fabric, and in so doing, we are taking part in this act of genesis. The world is constantly coming into creation, is constantly coming into being. Every day, every hour, every minute and moment is a new world. It is a world that had never existed ever before and will never exist ever again. We are responsible for that creation. We are responsible for the ways in which the world comes into being. Of course, we are not responsible for the entire world all at once. Each one of us has a limited scope of power. We have most power over ourselves, we have somewhat lesser power over those close to us, then lesser over our friends, lesser over our neighbors, lesser over strangers, lesser over those who are far and away and the, on the edges of the, our, of the earth who are themselves at the center of their own worlds. So we have to be modest about what it is we can actually control and change. But we nonetheless have this power each and every one of us. No one on earth is powerless. Some people have more power, some people have less. But how we use that power and how we cultivate it, that is 
the extent to which we are able to take part in this co-creation, this co-craftsmanship. The Kabbalists, uh, the Jewish mystics, had actually a very similar conception of the world. I won't go into the whole myth right now, but suffice it to say, they saw themselves as sort of mechanics. They saw themselves as uh, mechanics of creation, working on the back end, like tightening screws and, and, and levers with mitzvahs, good deeds, and doing good deeds for the Kabbalists and for many Jewish people today. That is an act of repair. That is going into the very knobs and screws and engine parts of reality, and it is mending them. It is fixing what is broken. It, it is tuning up and, and making the world better through these acts of goodness. And I think that the, this is a very powerful notion. It's an inspiring one. Because, again, the, just like the Gnostic myth, the Kabbalists saw themselves as having personal responsibility for the fate of the world. And they understood their actions as having metaphysical significance. But it also had very practical significance. What they did and what we do really does matter. And it, sometimes it doesn't seem like it. It sometimes feels like we're trapped in our own little lane, our own lives, and we have blinders on. We don't see the way in which our words uh, affect others, both positively and negatively. How our actions have these enormous ripple effects. How small things can have this butterfly effect that really changes, for better or for worse, a whole community. Or the life of somebody close to you. Or maybe the life of someone you've never met and never will. We each have an impact. We each have an influence. We are each demiurges in a sense. Whether we like it or not, whether we want this power or not, we have it. And the question that I think we should be asking is how to use it and how to use it well. Because the myth of the demiurge is one in which creation goes wrong. And human beings have been in the process and in the act of creating and creating and creating at an accelerated pace for the past several hundred years. And we've been creating blindly, much like the Demiurge. We've been creating and getting caught up in materiality, getting caught up in things and, in a sense, creating a world that is less and less functional, less and less in, in tune with the natural order that we have arisen from. The solution here, I think, lies in the myth itself, where the Demiurge created the world in its own image, and its own internal realm, its own internal world was flawed. It was egotistical. It thought it was the only thing that mattered, the only thing that existed. It created the world, the material world, and human beings in its own likeness. And when we create, we do the same thing. We create based on what it is we have within ourselves. How we think of ourselves, how we think of the world, how uh, we think of other people. Our outward actions are a result of our inward state. And I think that the way forward 
much like many philosophers and spiritual traditions have been advocating, and much of psychology, is to first understand ourselves. To understand ourselves and to change that internal world. Because whatever it is that we do, whatever direction we choose to go, whatever words we say or actions we do, or nonprofits we create, or businesses, or neighborhoods, that is a direct a projection and manifestation of what it is we carry within us. There's this line from uh, Milton, uh, Paradise Lost, talking about uh, Satan. From the bottom stirred the hell within, for within him hell he brings. Our internal world has a direct effect on the way in which we change the realm around us. Change our relationships, change our environment. And so that act of creation, that act of demiurgy, of perpetual genesis, it is currently taking place, whether we want it to or not. It is dependent on each and every one of us. It is dependent on the way in which we understand ourselves and we understand our relationship to other beings, other humans, other animals, to the past and also to the future, and to be good creators good demiurges. I think that is the goal, the thing that we aspire to, because we can each change the world a little bit in little ways. And knowing how to do it well, knowing how to become craftsmen, good craftsmen, is also learning how to be good humans, learning how to live a good life, at the end of which you can look back and see your legacy, see your effect, see the way in which you created, co-created a better world. That is the only thing I think we can truly hope for when we come to the end of our days. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. If you have thoughts or feedback on this episode, send me a message at daniel at reenchantmentpod.com. And if you are a listener of Reenchantment and want to make the show better, I could use your help. I'm doing a listener survey right now where I ask listeners what's going well about the show and what can be improved. So if you have five minutes, please go to reenchantmentpod.com and a window will pop up uh, right away asking you if you'd like to take the survey. As I said, it only takes about five minutes, and I'd really appreciate hearing your feedback and ideas on how to improve the show. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Reenchantment. <laughs>